Welcome into a little different look for Brewers Weekly. Don't worry, we're going to have the full live radio episode coming up uh, tonight live on WTMJ. We're also going to have it posted here on YouTube here tomorrow morning. But we have a guest. We have Tyler Kepner joining us here in today's show. And I wanted to post the entire interview here on YouTube and available wherever you get your podcasts as well. About 30 minutes we spent with Tyler. And if you don't follow Tyler already on Twitter, if you haven't read his work uh, you should start because he's one of the smartest baseball minds in the game. He has seen a lot. He is one of the baseball uh, lead baseball columnists for New York Times, and he has written two tremendous books that we get into here during our conversation. Uh, the most recent entry is The Grandest Stage, uh, A History of the World Series. Just a, as many detailed and incredible anecdotes about World Series and maybe stuff you forgot about or stuff that you know managers had to go through and players and unsung heroes, things of that nature. It's a fun read. I finished it in like four days during the playoffs last year. Absolutely thrilling. Get it wherever books are sold. Uh, shout out to my homies at Boswell Book Co. They had it right on opening day, so I went up there and, and got it from them. His other work came out in 2019 called K, A History of Baseball in 10 Pitches, all about the pitching, all about uh, the best pitches in baseball. There's a chapter per pitch, and it goes into detail of you know Nolan Ryan's fastball or Sandy Koufax's curveball and Gaylord Perry's spitball, Phil Necro's knuckleball, and on and on and on. You get the idea, right? So we talk a little bit of Brewers' connection, obviously with 1982, a little bit of Brewers in that K as well, because not many Brewers pitchers in 2019, remember, were synonymous with their pitches like we have now with Devin Williams and Corbin Burns and even Josh Hader, for that matter, back in the day. So really fun conversation with that. I also wanted to get Tyler's perspective on the Hall of Fame and kind of the weird reaction that I think we've all been seeing with Scott Rowland, and I personally thought he was a slam dunk Hall of Famer. Other people don't feel as such, uh, and Tyler does. He also explains why he doesn't have a vote, uh, even though he has been in the Baseball Writers Association of America for a very long time. But he would have voted for Scott Rowland, and why he's shocked that it's, you know, the message and the, oh, the Hall of Very Good, all this stuff. We talked about that. We also wanted to make sure we give our flowers to Fred McGriff. So Fred McGriff, crime dog, absolutely deserving Hall of Famer as well. This is more of a, a wider scope episode, but uh, if you're an absolute baseball nerd like myself, and I mentioned that a few times here in the show, uh, you would love both of these books. So I can't recommend them enough. I had a TikTok go viral uh, last winter during the lockout about asking me about baseball books, and this was before Grandest Stage came out. K was on that list. So uh, I hope you go out and get it. Tyler Kepner does great work with the New York Times. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Tyler Kepner. We also talk about the annual tradition that is the holiday trivia extravaganza that he puts out for baseball six years going now. Uh, I love doing it. I have it linked in the bio as well as uh, in the show notes as well if you're listening on the podcast. So, so without further ado, here's Tyler Kepner. All right, Tyler, I've got both books here. Grandest Stage and K, A History of Baseball in 10 Pitches. I want to start with Grandest Stage, your newest work. Uh, super fun read. I read it throughout the playoffs. And Brewers fans listening are obviously frustrated for obvious reasons that there's a very small portion of Brewers because they lost the only World Series they were featured in. But 1982, yeah. what what'd you learn about 82 with the Cardinals winning in seven and uh, some memories that jump right off the page from your research of 1982? You know, 82 is the first, it's a very special World Series to, to me because it was the first one I remember watching. Um, the first one I went to was the very next year because I'm from, uh, you know, I was, I'm a Philadelphia native and I got to go to the couple games in 83. Um, 
but I, you know, I was seven years old in 82 and that was the first one I really remember watching and being absolutely riveted um, by every game of that series. Um, you know, I, you all remember it well, I'm sure in Milwaukee, cause it's, it's, it's the only one, but um, you know, that, that, them winning that fourth game after the Willie McGee game in, um, in game three, the afternoon game in game four, there's still something um, romantic to me about an afternoon game in the world series um because i went to one the, the the next the next year but just you know uh, an old time ballpark like like that uh with those uniforms and those players a lot of hall of famers in that series and and, and interesting contrast in uh it's a speed team versus a, a power team uh one team had its hall of fame closer the other team didn't um and that might have been the difference in the series but um the biggest thing I, I, I dealt with about 82 in the book was um, was in the unsung hero or the unlikely heroes chapter because the Brewers took a 3-2 lead, of course, back to St. Louis um, to try to clinch it with Don Sutton on the mound and uh, facing John Stuper, who was a rookie and, 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 and didn't have a very long career, as it turned out. But Stuper pitched a complete game through a bunch of rain delays and a cold and miserable night. Um, they had a blowout win. And, uh, and 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 Sutton didn't have it, and of course the Brewers lost Game Seven. And after Game Seven, Sutton um, went over to the clubhouse, the Cardinal clubhouse, just to shake uh, John Stuper's hand and say they wouldn't have done this without you. So that meant a lot to him as a, as a rookie, and um, something he always uh, carried with him through 30 years as the head coach at Yale. Um, he just retired from. So um, that was a nice memory from him, um, you know. But I could go on and on about the '82 series. I, I feel like growing up as a Phillies fan, I always felt like the Phillies won the one series with Mike Schmidt and Steve Carlton, but by winning that one, they, that really put a, a, a crown over them forever. Kind of like a halo. Like these are the guys who got it done. It wasn't twice. It wasn't three times. Yeah. They made it a bunch of times and, and fell short, but they won one and one. The difference between zero and one is so much bigger than like one to two or two to three. Um, and I felt like the Brewers are one of those examples of teams that had um, all the ingredients to win and they just couldn't quite get it done. And that always, you know, you're always just, you always have that feeling that something, something's missing. You know, like Seattle had that with Griffey and Edgar and Buner and A-Rod and all those guys and Randy Johnson. And they just couldn't, they couldn't even get to a series, you know, Cleveland with Tommy and Manny and, and uh, all those, all those great players, Lofton and Bell and Vizquel and Nagy and, and they just couldn't quite do it. So I feel like um, it's so important to win that one because it validates everything um, forever about that group of players. It's funny. We just had the 40th celebration, uh, you know, locally, the lovable losers, if you will, uh, of the AL pennant winning team, 1982. Uh, obviously, Don has passed on. We had Darren Sutton actually in his place. And it was good to see him out here, uh, Don's son, you know, interacting with everybody from 82 and great memories. You mentioned Sutton. It's in the book. And I recommend Brewers fans to read it. It's a lot of fun, not just for the pain of 1982, but so much else, so much other, so many other details that you find. And where does the research begin for a project like this with world series being the center point. But then I, I kind of love that there is no agenda. It's just kind of based on chapters. All right, we got the lovable, you got the heroes, the manager decisions and so on and so forth. Where do you even start trying to figure out a, how to organize it and B who to talk to and figure out how to gather all of this? Yeah, I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to do a chronology. I thought that would be, um, that would be more of like a research, um, 
that would be more like I don't know, just a it wouldn't be a, a a narrative, you know. It wouldn't it wouldn't be the kind of thing that I that I think I'm good at, which is telling stories and, and talking to people and 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 finding themes and explaining and analyzing. Um, so I I thought it was best to pick several themes. As it turned out, um, seven. I thought seven was good for seven games, seven chapters, um, and that way I could incorporate the whole history of the series into each chapter. Like not necessarily, obviously not mentioning every series in every chapter, but the, the, the themes that I chose were sort of universal, whether it's how to build a World Series team or, like you said, managing. Um, I have one about like the sidebar stories that you might have forgotten to, uh, to to go with the famous moments. You know, not not Kirk Gibson's homer per se, but the the walk to Mike Davis that that set up that homer, that kind of thing. Um so, you know, I, I, we had the, the unlikely heroes chapter, um, you know, we had a ha- chapter about dealing with pressure um, and had a chapter about what it's like to fail in the big moment. Um, and then the seventh chapter was, was just a lot of fun lists and leftover stuff and, 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 and a lot of quirky little things that, you know, that, that people could just have fun with and debate. So um, I felt like that was the best way to do it. And uh, I would, I tried to talk to, you know, obviously as, as many people as I could, but, but that's probably not quite the right way to say it because certain guys, I just, I felt like they told their story about the world series so many times that um, I wanted to look a little bit beyond just like calling up Joe Carter and asking him for the 500th time, you know, about the, the home run. Like, you know, I, I tried to find other guys maybe around the periphery who I knew would be, um, you know, good talkers and have good perspective and, and insights about it. So um it, it seemed to work out pretty well. Um, you know, I, I, I'm pretty pleased with it. And, uh, and it was it was just great to be able to reconnect with, with, with so many people who were right there in the uh, in the fire. It's a fun read as a baseball sicko like myself. Uh, and even furthermore, your, your previous work, your your first one, K, A History of Baseball in 10 Pitches. You know, Brewers fans are, could read that now and think like, man, it, it came out 2019, if I'm not mistaken, correct? And, you know, Brewers fans could be reading it and thinking like, man, if this had come out now, th- there could be some features of Corbin Burns Cutter, Devin mm-hmm. Williams changeup, a little more Brewers flavor on it. But I mean, that's another fantastic piece of detail and the the research that has to go into it. And again, for a baseball sicko like myself or for anybody who's listening, uh, just the detail, a chapter per pitch understanding each what's going on take me through the process of, of figuring out the 10 pitches and who to talk to for that yeah you're right it it, it it turned out that um that i didn't actually need a lot of brewer stuff um for that book i mean in terms of pitchers associated with one particular pitch um in across the sweep of baseball history um it didn't real unfortunately it didn't really um have a lot of brewers in it it might have now because of the airbender change up of, of devin williams and and some of the stuff josh Hader was throwing up there and you're right Cor- corbin burns is cutter you know you want to start young with that that all happened in the three four years since the book came out um but yeah it, it's 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 a chapter on each pitch i i figured that 10 um you know in talking to a lot of people i figured there were 10 distinct pitches and obviously there there are a lot that are pretty close cousins right the, the cutter and the slider are 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 similar but but just different enough you know the the screwball and the change up um both turn it over and they fade but the screwball i think is a fundamentally um different pitch 
the pitchers who, who throw it um, feel that way. And they know a lot better than, than any of us. So, um, you know, the, the, the split has some change up action to it, that sort of thing. Um, the sinker, but I, I felt like they all have the 10 that I chose have distinct sort of, not just the way they move, but the mindset and behind them and the uh, purpose behind them um, is, is different. So that was, that, that was similar book in the sense that like, if you take those 10 pitches, um, you're not limiting yourself to any era of baseball history. You can talk about how it first came about and what some of the predecessors uh, of that pitch might've been, you know, in other words, like, they might not have called it a cutter until 30 years ago or so. Um, but there were guys, you know, who maybe threw something like that earlier. So you can get into the whole sweep of baseball history within each of these 10 chapters in telling the story of each pitch and the pitches themselves sort of become characters that are brought to life by the guys who, who threw them and caught them and faced them. Yeah. And the, the Necro knuckleball portions in there too, Gaylord Perry spitball, like the, the not necessarily mainstream, like, hey, everybody throws this pitch, but it's a legendary pitch in baseball history. I love those antidotes as somebody who obviously didn't get to see those guys pitch, being a little too young for it. I, I really thought for somebody like me, you painted the picture, understanding what guys were were standing in the box trying to see. There's a, a quip about uh, Suter's uh, splitter in there, too, when Robin Yount was in the in the box in 82. So the putting myself in the box, trying to imagine it, the imagery of it, I thought was brilliant on your part. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, you know, you, you get, you get, got some of that. I remember talking to uh, Robin Ventura who grew up uh, in California at the time when um, Fernando Valenzuela was, was great. And he said when he got to the big leagues and Fernando was old and Robin was young and Fernando was, I think on the Orioles, he just wanted to stand there just to see what that um, screwball uh, that Fernando threw looked like up close. He wanted to just take a picture too, just to see it for himself in the box. And cause he'd seen it from the stands and the TV for all those years. So um, yeah, that was, that was cool. And, and, and the time that I did it, I think was very important because um, those guys we're losing a lot of those guys now, you know, that, 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 that generation um, of pitchers who came, you know, won 300 games or, or close to it, you know, pitched 300 innings now and then, um, just these stalwart guys who in general started in the sixties and ended in the eighties or early nineties, that kind of thing that the Nolan Ryan, um, Steve Carlton, Tom Seaver, uh, Gaylor Perry, that whole era, Fergie Jenkins, um, you know, Bob Gibson to some extent, you know, I was able to talk to Don Sutton, Bill Necro, all those guys. Um, and some of them, like I said, Necro, Sutton, um, Gibson, a Perry no longer with us. Uh, Roy Halliday from a different generation. Um, I, I was able to talk to him a few months before his fatal uh, plane crash. So you know there were a lot of um, a lot of voices in there who you know if I had done this project five years later um, I wouldn't be able to get. So so that was um, I think the timing of it was was important because those guys have a lot of stories to tell and and I think that's. That's really was the beginning. That's that the original conception of that book was was to try to get at that generation of um, of pitchers because there's never going to be another generation like it. I mean, never say never, but um, it doesn't sure doesn't seem like a 300 inning sort of pitcher is is going to come around anymore. I mean, it hasn't happened since 1980 with Steve Carlton, um, who was my baseball hero and didn't talk to the media, but um, I was able to talk to him for 
for about 40 minutes for the book. And that was, that was the highlight for me. Um, you get his insights on the slider. So, you know, I just, I've always, I've always uh, been fascinated by that generation because I saw, I caught the end of it in the eighties um, when those guys were retiring and uh, to be able to share a lot about them um, was sort of the original idea that morphed into what it, what it became. Really fun stuff. Uh, if you were doing a, a, a follow-up, at least maybe a five-year down the line or a 10-year down the line follow-up, we already mentioned Williams and Burns being two pitches you would love to feature. Are there any other pitchers in the modern game of their their repertoires that you would like to throw into a follow-up to K of some new pitches that you want to throw into there? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, a, a lot has um, gone on in, in pitching since then. I mean, I, I obviously, you know, in the spitball chapter, I talk about foreign substances on the ball, but I, I, I think if I were to update it, if, if that ever happened or do a different or do a new one, it would, you know, there'd be some stuff about the, 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 the sticky stuff um, issue from a couple years ago. And the, um, there is some stuff in the book about the, which was the beginnings of that era of the high fastball curveball combination. And, and, and I think I would get more into that, that, that the way that pitchers throw upstairs now, knowing the data on, on how their pitch spins, um, which they didn't know before. Um, so a lot of that stuff was, was embryonic. I mean, I remember going to, to driveline in 2017, just to, you know, see their facilities and, and have them give me a little tour and, and, um, and thinking like, you know, this is so advanced and, and, and so applicable. Um, all teams should really have it, you know, all, this should be more widespread. Why is it just, you know, up at this, in this office park and, in Seattle when it could help other, other teams. And, um, sure enough, six years later, you know, all teams are using some, you know, you're, you're not doing your job if you're not given, you know, analyzing everything through high speed cameras and all that. Um, so say what you will about like Trevor Bauer and, and uh, but he was, he was pretty, uh, advanced in, in that kind of thinking. And he was proven, he has been proven right in, in the sense that, uh, the whole industry has adopted the, uh, you know, the, the, the driveline sort of method. So um, it would be a lot more on, on, on pitching labs and data capture and what you can do, um, in, not just through word of mouth and passing down of the oral tradition of, of pitching, but um, the passing down of grips and stuff, but with science behind it and how much more efficient that makes guys um, as they go through the big leagues or minor leagues because they know what, what pitch they need. They don't just have to guess anymore. It's amazing the revolution that we've seen. I was definitely a driveline hater in 2014, 2015 when I'm seeing the guys doing a full crow hop and a pull down, as they call it, you know, throwing, all right, cool. He threw it 100 miles an hour, getting a running start. Now I understand, okay, it's like speed training. It's like a sprinter running downhill. And so much more we've learned in just year over year about pitch design as opposed to five years down the road and 10 years down the road. It's, it moves. Really, really fast. Uh, I wanted to shift now. Again, the books are awesome. I, I obviously on planes a lot, so that's my go-to. Uh, obviously, baseball books or whatever. You can see the bookshelf behind me as well. Trying to catch up in that world. I want to talk uh, with New York Times every holiday season. Uh, it, it's a fun day for my dad and I uh, when when you drop the baseball extravaganza quiz. Uh, it's been a few years now, consecutive going. What was the inspiration? And when you brought the idea to your editor initially, what was the response? And this quiz has kind of taken on a life of its own the last few years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, I loved, uh, I've loved trivia my whole life. Um, when I was coming, 
coming up up the ranks. I had a little baseball magazine. That's how I started um, in this business. I did a uh, a monthly baseball magazine from when I was in middle school till um, the beginning of college, and uh, you know we had a trivia page and stuff in there. But I think I think the impetus, the um, genesis of it, really is is growing up on on Jason Stark in the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer. He's uh, he was sort of a, a hero and role model of mine who became a a mentor and and, and a very close friend. Um, and so you know Jason it would always come up with trivia questions in his in his columns or radio appearances um and 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 i just when i started covering um baseball for my magazine uh in philadelphia there was a a sports writer for the ap named jack shore and jack would uh you know jack would come up to you you'd see jack at any time of the day you know at the ball bar you could ask him and he would have a question at the ready and it wasn't a question like how many home runs did Mickey Mantle hit? Because that's just a number. That's a number you either know or you don't. It, it Jackie gave questions in, it, in the way that like you you'd had to chew on them for a while, and and you could get them if you thought of it in the right way. Like you know, it'd be name uh, the f- whatever it is the four MVPs who had four letters and their first name and four letters and their last name. You know that sort of thing. So like then you go through like you can eliminate so many people right off the bat. So you start thinking like okay, who has you know, names like Pete Rose, Jeff Kent, Fred Lynn, that kind of thing. Um, it wouldn't have been Jeff Kent back then because um, this was the 90s. But um, but Jackie, you know, and he, he died a few years ago, but uh, just a couple years ago, really. But, you know, you'd see him in the press box, even at Citizens Bank when I was uh, doing this professionally. And you see Jackie and, and ask him for a question. He'd come right up with one. And two innings later, he'd ask you, you got it yet? You know, or so. I don't know. That's just kind of the 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 stuff I um I love, and I thought I could share it on a day, uh, you know, Christmas, um, when they probably don't have a lot of uh, other stuff going on. Um, it's an easy thing to to write beforehand, so they can just get it all ready and just push, you know, push publish or whatever. Um, so it's a little it's a little bit easier to do on a, on a on a day, you know, publishing wise, but without a lot going on. But um, yeah, I just thought it'd be fun. I thought it's six years now. I thought it'd be fun for people, um, you know, on Christmas morning, you know, when you get that paper, uh, if you're a print subscriber, you know, you get it. And then it's sort of like an afterthought because there's so much Christmas excitement going on. And you're like, oh, yeah, the paper. And then, you know, it's something that maybe you'll you'll do in the afternoon and a casual. So you got the whole day to sit around and, you know, just do stuff like that. So, um, you know, and, yeah, and obviously now you can do it online. Um, and we have some slightly different online questions just because the way the quiz is formatted. But I love it. And I think of questions all year. I just put them in my notes app on my phone. Um, and I love coming up with categories and then sort of, you know, digging, digging deep in those categories to find some, some fun stuff. I think it's not that hard, but everyone always tells me it's like, it's like really, uh, really, uh, devi- you know, diabolical, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I guess if you get in the thirties or something, you're doing okay. Cause Jason, Jason said he got the 31 this year. And, uh, and like I said, he's sort of the, the standard form. So uh, we're great on a curve. I, I beat my dad this year for the first time. So I wow. was very excited about that by one, uh, but very excited. We were both in the thirties. I want to say I was 34. He was 33. Uh, something oh, very like that. good. So we were, I mean, like I said, we're both sickos. I've been reading a lot the past, you know, 12, 18 months because of all the flights I've been having to take. But uh, it, it, I love it, man. I keep up the great work on that. I love doing it. I've read a few on 
you know, rain delay theater before and trying to have some fun. I save it into my notes app as well. And so, all right, whenever I need to pull something, I, I'll just go back to Kepner's quizzes here. And I got them all in a running word doc here. So. Yeah, there are good. There are good. I mean, like Dan Shaughnessy, he, he pulls from it sometimes in his weekly column, but he also comes up with good questions. Um, uh, the Yes Network has a, has a trivia question every game. Um, that's good. One of those that makes, you know, that makes you think like, you know, so X number of players who played for both the Yankees and the Blue Jays, like, so let's say they're playing the Blue Jays that day, you know, um, made, you know, how many players made, you know, like, let's say three players made the all-star team for the Yankees and the Blue Jays, you know, who are they? Yeah, I don't know if that's an accurate question or not, but just like that would, that would be the kind of question that would get you thinking, okay, who played for both teams? Oh yeah, he did, but was he good enough to be an all-star for both? You know, that's the kind of thing that, that you can, like I said, that's a good question to me because that makes you think um, it's out there. If you think it, it, you can eliminate things in your mind immediately and you can sort of shuffle through the categories. Um, so I don't know. I have a weird baseball brain, um, but uh, it, it, it comes in handy for trivia stuff. No kidding. Uh, I'm keeping you longer than I said I would keep you, but I do want to get to a, a couple of other questions that I had for you as well. Uh, in our reaction now, it's been a week or so since Scott Rowling was uh, selected into the Hall of Fame. Uh, for, forgive me, you do have a vote, I, I imagine, as a baseball writer. Uh, I could, but uh, the New York Times has a policy where they don't let the, the writers vote. So ah, it's sort of a shame because I've been in the association 25 years, but um, yeah, I only need 10 to vote. But uh, yeah, I don't, so I, don't, I can't submit the, the ballot that, that, that I've, uh, I guess, earned by being in the association. But So that's a little bit uh, tough. But yeah, I would have voted for Roland. Um, in fact, I would have voted for, um, you know, I was thinking, what would I have done? I would have voted for Beltran as the new guy. Um, Roland, Helton, Kent, uh, Gary Sheffield, um, uh, Jimmy Rollins, and Andy Pettit. I've come around on Pettit um, over the years. Um, and, and, and it was an interesting ballot because I don't think there were um, – a lot. Uh, there was no like Greg Maddox on this ballot, you know, no, no Ken Griffey Jr. types where you just don't even think about it. Um, but having to think about a guy is not it's not bad. I mean, if you go through the actual, if you actually go into the Hall of Fame, um, you will find a lot of plaques of guys you've never heard of um, yep. or have barely heard of. Um Dave Bancroft is a Hall of Famer, right? Epa Rixey, um, Jesse Haynes. I mean, a lot of good players, a lot of great players from back in the day. Um, Freddie Lindstrom, you know, um, High Pockets Kelly. I mean, the, the, not every Hall of Famer is high comp. So if you look at it at what the standards of the Hall of Fame really are, um, not what you would want them to be, but what they really are, um, I think a lot more players make it than or are worthy than you think. Um, and that's not even including some other guys on this ballot who, who will probably make it eventually who fall a little short for me, like Billy Wagner and Andrew Jones, um, you know, Bobby Abreu. I mean, just tremendous careers, Mark Burley even. Um, and uh, you know, they, they, they may very well make me meet the standard. And if they do, I'd be happy for them. Let's find happy for Roland. Like, you know, you might not think of him as a hall of famer, um, but until Aaron Nolan Arenado hits one more homer, there's only two guys in baseball history with 300 homers and I think eight gold gloves at third base. And, and, and that's Scott Rowland and Mike Schmidt. So if you're talking about uh, what you want from ideally, what you want from a third baseman is a guy with power who can feel the position. And only one guy ever did that better. 
than than Scott Rowland, and that was Mike Schmidt. Now Nolan Arenado's in that class too, and certainly George Brett was amazing, and Chipper Jones and Brooks Robinson, and and, and a lot of great third basemen. He's not in the upper tier of third basemen, but he's plenty good enough to be a third baseman in the Hall of Fame. When you look at other Hall of Fame third basemen, tell me the difference between Scott Rowland and and, and Ron Santo, and and I, I I don't see any. And they're yeah. you know, and Santo's in and the Veterans Committee, but once you're in, you're in. Plaque doesn't say any different as to how you got in. So um, Scott, you know, was never a, he never really came close to an MVP award, whatever. Okay. Barry Bonds won a lot of MVPs and he's not in because of the steroid connection. Right. Even though the writers ended up, you know, having about 60 or so percent in favor of Bonds, he needs 75 and that makes it really tough. So um, anybody who who accumulates the 75%, especially on the writers, you know, from the writers is a, has done a lot of things right in their career, and, and, and I'm going to be happy for him. Just like I was happy for Harold Baines. Didn't think he was a Hall of Famer, but I see the I see the argument, and I'm really happy for Harold Baines. He had a wonderful career. Glad he's a Hall of Famer. Wouldn't have voted him for him, but now that he's in, great job. I mean, what an amazing career. Everybody in the Hall of Fame, everybody on the Hall of Fame ballot had a fantastic career. Everyone who gets in the Hall of Fame ballot, pretty much you'd sign up for that career if you draft a guy first overall. So, um, they won't all make it. Most Many of them won't even get a vote. But just to have 10 years in the big leagues that were good enough to get your name on that ballot, even as a as a token, um, means you've done something special and made a mark on the game. Yeah, it, it's I compare it to the Olympics with the Hall of Fame. Right. So everyone tends to remember who's on the podium. Right. Everyone gets to remember who won the gold medal, who won the silver, all this stuff. And people think, oh, are you, are you disappointed? Like if you ask a marathon runner who got to run in the Olympics, are you disappointed you didn't get on the point? It's like, are you kidding me? I'm like eighth in the world. Like, I, you right, know, right. just because you're not a first ballot Hall of Famer doesn't mean you're not an extremely talented individual. And Roland, people are acting like he was a first ballot, 100% Hall of Famer. Like, no, he, he had to mm-hmm. sweat it out for a few years. The resume builds up. And you're right. It's not, we don't have to have, the slam dunk guy every year. That's why it's so hard to get in to have mm-hmm. 75% because the people that judge on this, and I know there's a lot of folks disagreeing on Billy Wagner's status and Gary Sheffield's status, but that's why we go through the ringer and kind of comb through this even finer and finer and finer for 10 years long. So I, I I'm shocked at the discourse that's followed with Scott Rowland. I thought he was absolutely a deserving hall of famer to say the least. Uh, when it comes to Fred McGriff, I wanted to give you a second because obviously the writers didn't vote on that one in this year's ballot. But Fred McGriff, I thought for a long time, like, how is this guy not in the Hall of Fame? You can point to the strike of keeping him out. I, I think Fred McGriff was a no doubt slam dunk Hall of Famer. and It was shocking to see his low vote totals during the time that he was on the ballot. I absolutely agree. I, I When Fred McGriff came on the ballot, I did a column, um, you know, jumping the gun a little bit, but but sort of thinking that, yeah, you know, his first year, like, oh well, you know, this guy's going to sail in, and 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 he didn't really come close. Um, I, I think, yeah, he had 493 homers. If not for the strike, he, he surely would have had 500. But you can say that for other guys, you know, the Warrior guys who lost a lot more time. Um, the 81 strike wiped out 50 games. Certainly, COVID, um, you know, wiped out most of the season um, more recently. So, you know, that that that's not really unique in baseball history. That that something unforeseen would cause a guy to miss a milestone. Um, 493 is still, is still great. Um, I think what happened with McGriff was just, he got lost in the shuffle of the 10 man limit on a ballot, which the writers have tried to 
tried to say, just let us vote for who we want to vote for. And the Hall of Fame has kept it to 10. It's fine. We just serve it at their at their pleasure. You know, they can change everything if they wanted. Um, it's their hall. Um, as opposed to like the MVP and Cy Young, because those are awards that the Baseball Writers Association gives out. You know, the Hall of Fame gives out the Hall of Fame awards. We just, they just ask us to vote on them. Um, so that's a that's a difference. But with McGriff, yeah. So I think the, the limit of 10, there were a lot of guys on some of Fred McGriff's ballots that he was on. There were 10 10 other players who ended up making the Hall of Fame. Um, and, and and there were three guys like Bonds and Schilling and Clemens. Schilling, you know, got to 70 and then and then couldn't quite get over the hump. A lot of off-field stuff there. Um, and then uh and then Bonds and Clemens, we know. So, but but they got a lot of votes. And if you were gonna fill up your ballot with 10. It was it was understandable in some cases that McGriff might not be in your top ten, um, but he just never got enough um, support to 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 make it with the writers. But I knew that as soon as he got into the Veterans Committee, he was going to sail in, and he did automatically um, because he has everything that a Veterans Committee sort of looks at, which is long. They love longevity. Um, they love sort of the the big counting numbers, and. Um, and they love guys who are perceived as, uh, you know, pure and um, it, without scandal attached to it, did it the right way. And certainly nothing has ever been attached to Fred McGriff. Um, he's a gentleman. He's always had a great sterling reputation in the game. And um, I think when he came on the writers on the veterans committee ballot, it was a clear oversight Um by the by the writers because it's much easier to look at a career and say this guy played 20 years almost 500 home runs clean reputation put him in rather than look at like an albert bell and say like okay well he was really dominant but only for 10 years he doesn't have the big counting numbers what do we do with a guy like that you know nobody really liked him um it's harder for a small committee to sort of get the consensus or the 75 percent for a guy like an albert bell um, than it is for a guy like McGriff, even though in their primes, I think you'd rather have Bell than McGriff, let's say. Um, McGriff doing it longer um, with the higher numbers, I think resonates with a small group. And then, you know, with Bonds and Clemens and those guys, and Schilling even, like, you know, Schilling said he wanted to be judged by um, people whose, uh, men whose opinions he, 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 respect, he respects, and they gave him less support ultimately than the writers. So I've always gotten along with Kurt. I, I would put him in easily. I think he's a Hall of Famer for sure. Um, but he actually got less support from the uh, the small committee than he got from the writers. Go figure. So um, that was pretty telling, you know, that 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 group didn't just look at like Bonds and Clemens and say, oh, put them in. What were the writers thinking? You know, um, they didn't they didn't put those guys in either. So it's going to be a tough road for them. Um, it looks like. Yeah, I agree. Well, I've kept you longer than I said I would. I want to thank you for your time, Tyler. Uh, hopefully we'll be catching up in a press box in late October here in Milwaukee, uh, you know, against all odds when you're writing for the New York Times. Otherwise, I might cross paths with you at some point during the regular season. This hey, year. Thanks for joining us it. here. I would love to see it. Milwaukee is such a fun town. The, the amount of fan support they the Brewers draw um, relative to the size of the market is is really, really impressive. Um, they put on a great product at that ballpark. That ballpark stays fresh. And then Mark Atanasio really um, you know, cares a lot about, about that. And, you know, Craig Council is, is one of the two or three best managers in baseball, I would say. Um, so they, they make the most with what they've got. It's a smart front office. Um, it's fun to watch those pitchers. Um, and the times I've been there in October, it has been very fun. I've, I've seen two 
two pennants clinched uh, by other teams on that uh, on that field. And um, honestly, I would love to see the Brewers get over the hump because I think a World Series in Milwaukee is long overdue. And it would be, um, you know, from a national perspective, I think it'd be a great a great party, a great scene. And uh, one of these years, let's hope it happens. It should happen sooner as opposed to later. I think the right people are in charge to get it done. Tyler Kepner, New York Times. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here, uh, Brewers Weekly and at 620 WTMJ. All right, Donald. Thank you.